Hello and welcome to our podcast. We're calling it The Hunch because we believe you get the best ideas from people when they're relaxed, when they're with friends. And rather than giving you the corporate line, they give you their best guess, their gut feeling, their hunch. I'm Mark Schmid, and in each episode, I'll be talking to someone who can give us the lowdown on something that will transform their sector, our society, or even our everyday lives. Hello, in this episode of The Hunch, I'm with Joe Daly, VP Learning and Development at Warner Music Group. Joe talks to me about how talent is your competitive advantage, why startup ideology has woken up the wider business community to the power of L&D, and how colleagues can learn to excel, both their employer and themselves. Hi, Joe. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm really well. It is a beautiful, sunny day when we're talking to each other. It's like spring has finally sprung after some dark months. And I was just looking at your uh, kind of career history and boy, you know, we talk about kind of zigzags and, you know, careers that go a lot of different places. And you've worked for some incredible companies and done some incredible things. So just tell us a little bit about your journey uh, to end up where you are today. Yeah, it's, it's not been by design, any of it, I think. Fair to say, I just... I followed my nose a lot. I think when you, you're young, you don't really know what it is you're driving at. I started out in media, which is kind of like it's a receptacle for waifs and strays who don't have vocational <laughs> kind of like, couldn't be a doctor, couldn't be a lawyer, but often very clever people, very maverick people and, you know, fit together in this wonderful media landscape. But always within that, I knew I was fascinated by people and, and how do you get the best out of people? It always been something that I'd pondered just from from a distance and I wanted to work with people but I didn't want to work in HR knew that I didn't back you know back when I was starting out my career HR was seen as the kind of the police force of an organization Mm. right they were the people that had to sort out the humans when the humans were misbehaving and it goes back to that organizational belief that the the, the talent aren't the talent they're the risk of an organization and they need to be controlled and managed and all of those terribly Fordist Taylorist views of the workplace and that didn't chime with me I didn't like any of that I knew from an early I was very very progressive in my view of what a workforce was capable of delivering to an organization so without realizing it went on a journey through businesses to try and understand how to be that person in an organization back when organizations were still talking about training Mm. and the idea of training people and making them less rubbish at their jobs and moving to that more enlightened position where the talent are your competitive advantage and they are learning how to be excellent for you and for themselves. And I, was, I never found organisations really that embraced that until I came into media and then started moving through media. And it was only really startups that accelerated that view of the workforce as being the catnip of businesses' success. So L&D owes a lot to startups and startup ideology, the growth mindset that's the heartbeat of any decent startup, which is you come in and you do what you want to do and we'll help you figure out how to be better at it, but don't get stuck in a pigeonhole. I've never been stuck in a pigeonhole. I've always transcended anybody's ability to tell me that I'm this or I'm that. I've always added skills to my skill set at my own expense. I've always paid for my own learning. I paid to qualify as a coach I paid to every piece of learning I've ever done that I've footed the bill for it and I'm proud of that because that's that's when you know that you're a learner 
by design because you'll pay for your own learning. So to a long answer there, I think, but I've kind of gone on the milk run all around the houses to find the organisations who were enlightened about people. And it ended up being in the kind of turn of the, the, the millennium startup mindset. And that's where I found my home. And now I look around organisations who are more traditional and more legacy. You're starting to see those behaviours emerging, that embracing of talent. And it's great. It's just, you know, 15 years too late. We were, I was there 15 <laughs> years ago. And now everyone's catching up and talking about the future of work. Like well, it even, hasn't been on the agenda for 20 years. Even use of the word talent, because, you know, as you, as you say, you know, looking back to early in our careers, you know, it was personnel and then, you know, then HR. Uh, and, and talent wasn't mentioned because it, you know, wasn't recognised in that way. And and when you, uh, my early experiences of training, you know, very, very task orientated, you know, just being able to prepare you to do, you know, that next rung on the ladder or even just an, a, a change to your working life. And it was very much around performance, legal compliance often, you know, requirements yeah. And certainly there wasn't uh, a thought about how um, L&D could make you more agile, more innovative, uh, or even more kind of healthy, both, you know, in, in a mental, physical sense for the workforce, certainly not in terms of, you know, diversity of thought or, you know, diversity of, of all, all of the, all of the different ways of variety that brings and, and strengthens to the, the workplace. And I hadn't actually made the connection to, to what was at the vanguard of that change was new businesses and startup businesses. So the big established companies were kind of sleeping on this, were they, and had to learn from the upstarts? Well, I think the key driver paradigmatically is, is one of disruption, right? So organisations who formed to disrupt sectors and to disrupt industries had to do so through the power of their people. They would have, they have a great idea, right? And they know how to scale that idea. It's often a digital engineering idea. If we look at the history of startups most recently, but it's through disruption and that sense of getting there quicker than your competition, as driven by people. Right? You can have an ex. You could have an excellent Spotify, but it, it was the people who re-educated the world on music consumption. That's what disrupted the music industry. Yeah, there was a platform. Yeah, the music was free. But for a very long time, people didn't really understand whether it was radio, how's it not a CD, and it's not pirated music. Couldn't get their head around what Spotify is. And now you couldn't imagine a world without it. So disruption is actually what's enabled this L&D agenda because it's it genuine. You have to learn to be better than your competitors. You have to know more than they know about a sector that they've owned. So I spent quite a lot of time working in a digital design agency called Made by Many and genuinely working with some of the cleverest people I've ever met um, and clever in lots of different ways. It, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't about ego, they weren't trying to be clever. They were just all fundamentally very curious and interested in knowing more. And when you're designing, when you're creating you have to understand your audience, you have to understand everything, and you have to be better than the people you're designing for. You have to know their business better mm. than they do, right? Because you have to design the future for them, and it has to be a future that fits. And so learning in that environment is essential. It's an essential behavior in agile design environments, where learning is an agenda item before most other things. You're not getting constantly better at designing what you're doing. Your designs will not be fit for purpose. 
and I think I've carried that a little bit with me as well into into my work at Warner and the work that I do now is that, that sense of constant be learning always be learning um, and that's that's been me that's my all I'm doing is living my personal values I'm because I'm just fundamentally really interested. I think it's nosy as well. I'm just nosy. Mm. I want to know, not because I want to weaponize knowledge. I want to know because I love having good conversations about interesting stuff. And in order to do that, you have to know stuff. You've got to be able to bring it. Mm. And we all, we all know in our heart of hearts that we should never stop learning and that we have many moments in our well, our careers and our personal lives as well. Wow moments when you really still have the joy of, of picking up a new skill or talent or just understanding something that's happening better than you did before. But sometimes in work, when we've been doing it for a while, we slip into a bit of a know-it-all mentality and think that, well, actually, the, the learning is, is for, the, for the juniors. You know, I've kind of, I've, I've done enough of these you know, remote learning courses away days call it what you will do you come across that still and if you do how do you motivate people who might be a bit longer in the tooth to still have that thirst for learning that's a really really good point and it's it's a really really pertinent point to where we are at the moment post pandemic and it, for me it comes down to the difference between people who have who have a fixed mindset and they need to be right and there is a right and a wrong and they need to be on the right side of right and failure is not an opportunity to learn. It's something to be ashamed of. And that you're caught up in that is the ego that drives all of it, which is about being better than somebody else. And that's sometimes how organisations reward people, right? So they're promoting mm. those behaviours through the reward mechanisms that they create in their organisations. High potential organisation, picking out, cherry picking out individuals and, and then fast tracking them is, you know, can often be... A, playing into the hands of poor recognition so I'm you know looking for a fixed mindset and, and and identifying it quickly and then asking the coaching the right mindset into people is really really important and celebrating the things that fixed mindsets can't cope with right then the first thing is failure the sooner you make peace with and forgive yourself for getting things wrong the quicker you learn and you only get it wrong once. And as long as you're only getting it wrong once, you're learning, you're evolving, you're becoming more sophisticated as an operator. So the work that we do at Warner and what we, what we design for at Warner in our learning programs is having conversations about what, what rightness is and the need to be right and how limiting that is and how binary it is. So it's lovely to see leadership development trying to embrace things like failure and understand mm. the impact of it. And, and embrace the idea of feedback and that sense that we have a responsibility to one another to help each other out and hold a mirror up to each other, not in judgment, but to help one another course correct. You know, if I was getting something wrong, I would want to know uh, because I can cope with the idea that I'm failing or I'm not getting it right because I'm not bound by the, the kind of the binary nature of rightness and wrongness. And you're seeing that creeping into leadership development programs now where that sense of owning your wrong and being comfortable with, with failing. It's really important leadership thought and a very important set of behaviours to model. And I, I think it, it gets touched on sometimes with this like humble leader, savant leader ideology. But that is different. That is different. Being a, being a leader who models failure and, and demonstrates the learning that comes from failing very very powerful but not very prevalent at the moment still mm, mm. and 
it, it seems to me that people have learned that you almost have to say those things, you know, oh, yes, we encourage failure, we welcome feedback. But in many cases, they don't really. I mean, how, how do you see past those that have learned to say the right thing? Um, and how do you actually get them to do the right thing? So I think the first thing you do is you pop the bonnet, don't you, of a leader's organisation or anybody's organisation, and you see what's happening underneath. And, you know, so if you are very comfortable with failure, show me your performance evaluation model. Show me where you're having a conversation about a goal that's been missed and, and what, the, 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 what that represents as an opportunity to learn. If your performance management model is all about achievement and attainment and not necessarily about missing the mark, clearly you're just talking the talk. There's no active capacity within the way you evaluate people to be having this conversation about failure. And then you kind of like dig around under the bonnet a little bit more and you look at people, maybe people's management training programs and you look at how well, how well are we equipping managers in the fine art of tough conversations and giving constructive feedback. And if that's not part of your management training curriculum, if it, it should be all curriculum, really. But it's a particular gravitas at a manager level where that personality is often going up the, up the line taking feedback from on high and passing it down to the level below. And if you're training, if you're, if you're learning opportunities and not around how to do that in a, in, with compassion in a way that creates psychological safety for the hearer, then you know, you're, again, you're just talking the talk. So there's lots of things that you can look for when you pop the bonnet of an organisation, have a good dig around, check the oil levels. Um, I think this motoring analogy is going to run out quite soon um, <laughs> to, to really understand how well people and how well organizations are really embracing the impact yeah. of celebrating failure yeah. or learning and, from failure even. And we, we see it now and, and hear so much about the battle for talent and how hard it is for businesses to recruit and retain um, the people they really, really want. Is L&D now a key criteria that the employee looks at when they're deciding to, to make a move? I think so, without a doubt. And I think that's driven by different generations, definitely. So if you look at younger generations coming into the workplace now, they are interested in understanding what the organisation will do to development, what is the investment in their career, what's the, the quid pro quo of I'm doing this for you, what are you doing for me? And that represents a massive shift ideologically, certainly from when I entered the workplace. And I was, you know, you were lucky to get Excel spreadsheet training, let alone be talking about things from an employee engagement perspective, being able to make rational decisions about which organization you will join based on how they're going to invest in your learning and thus your future career. This is all very new world order stuff. And some organizations are getting their head around it better than others so we've transcended the whole having free food in the office that there's a cabinet full of diet coke um, and we've got a football table and you can bring your dog to work as well if you've got one now but we've transcended those really quite easy to create employee experiences and employees are very very clever they're adapting very quickly the more they hear about the you know the war for talent it hasn't taken them long to start understanding that means that they're in demand and this is a kind of dynamic that we see changing every 16 to 18 years, right? And it's all linked to economic factors, 
where one minute the, the employee is the slave and then the next minute they're the master and then something will happen globally. The, the, it will reset and we'll go back to square one again. And then, you know, the bull whips come out and the boss is the boss again. What I think probably won't reset ever, irrespective of market forces or global outlook, what I don't think will reset is this expectation now that we've all been able to benefit from which is me at the heart of my career, what's in it for me? What are you doing for me? And that now feels like a very good question as opposed to a question that's reeking in entitlement or ego bound. It feels like a rational question for somebody to ask when they think about where are they gonna spend their time? Where are they gonna bring their magic? Where are they gonna do their career defining work? And if you're gonna ask people to turn up then it, it really has to be a sense of what are you going to do for me? How are you going to make me better? Because if you make me better and I stay longer, you don't have an issue with the war on talent, right? You're, you're indemnified from the risks of losing your talent. I'm staying, I'm doing my best work. Yeah, I'm, I'm being the best version of myself. And L&D is finally able to be the driving factor that it always was. Yeah. We, we haven't gone away. We were always there doing this work. But the leadership view of the value of L&D has changed seismically because they all need to be able to answer this question really quickly. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, you, you get from everything you're saying that, you know, the employers who, who clearly value people and are infused about what they're doing and the people who work with them, you know, get back that level of, of buy-in. And you're in the music industry, which is, of course is a passion for so, so many people. Uh, and I don't know whether this makes it easier or harder. So my, my question is, we all, we all uh, experienced, you know, fantastic job satisfaction, even if you're working with washing powder, financial services, sometimes as much as or more than if you're working in an area you're passionate about, such as music or sport. Clearly, you're in the passion world. You know, when I see you work for Spotify, Virgin Radio, obviously, you know, the role you have now at Warner Music Group, there must be so many people through that door who spend their life subsumed in the world in which you operate. Does that make what you do a lot easier? It seems like it might, or in fact, does it make it harder? That's a really, really good question. I think and it, it comes back to that piece around purpose, doesn't it? You're Passion is definitely the emotional expression of a great sense of purpose. I understand why I'm here. I understand what I'm doing. I know what value I'm adding and I want to keep doing it. Everybody's happy. When your passion is your job, it, you know, you're just able to work harder for longer without hitting the usual bumps in the road that come with, you know, possibly marketing or working in washing powder when it's not your ministry. Does it make it harder no. Does it make it easier? No. It's just a different. It's just a different set of relationships, different set of expectations. I think when your passion is your work, you can be more forgiving of the mm. things that you don't have. So I always make the kind of the analogy that if somebody were going into, you know, one of the big four management consultancies, for instance, and they weren't an economist and they hadn't done maths at school or they hadn't done business science and they were a bit on it, would they stay for long? Probably not. So finding the thing that blows your hair back and then making it your job is excellent. 
So it's it's the very stuff of life, right? If you can nail that, you've you've sussed it out, you've cracked it. Well done. And um, for the rest of us, there's going to be compromise, without a doubt. So I think we probably when, as I say, when the passion that you have is the work that you do, you'll be very forgiving of certain things. Mm. But I don't think any organisation should leverage that or try and cost cut or cut corners or take advantage of people because of that. We certainly don't at Warner. Um, we were very understanding that when we tread very lightly with people's dreams, right? Because they've, they've worked really hard to get to where they are. Yeah. And you still have a responsibility, a pastoral duty of care to your people to potentialize them, to make them the best that they can be at the job that they love. It doesn't mean you get to coast because you've got a load of people who would do it for half the money because, they, you know, they're hanging out with the band. I don't think we live in that world anymore. I don't think we live in that world. And with diversification and with just more brands in the entertainment space, there's always another competitor that's going to be looking for our staff. There's always going to be another organization that's looking to emerge as a startup that's got, you know, offering people skin in the game. Stock and equity was a massive game changer at the you know early 2000s. And that sense of I get to express my purpose through a better financial position. If this pays off, I'm moving, you know, I'm moving three roads up. I'm getting a walk, you know, a driveway in a walk-in closet. So those people <laughs> are seeing those things happening and they've got friends who've benefited from stock positions. From taking chances and, and following following the money so i don't that's probably a very long-winded answer i don't think it makes it easier but good l d people good organizations realize that they have to be equally as thoughtful if not more thoughtful when passionate people do jobs that are dreams mm. and how has the kind of productive learning environment changed for better or worse with more hybrid working practices I think there's, there's definitely the obvious convenience of being able to get people to congregate quickly with very much less the planning to learn through a screen in a way that hasn't actually been the disruptive evil that I think many feared it would be. We, but we're definitely seeing people tiring of digital interaction, right? without a doubt. And, and that's interesting because I think had the pandemic not happened, we were still very much having to aggravate for a digital learning subscription and, and, and get investment for it, diversify the blender across mobile and desktop and give people the time to do it. So it accelerated the march towards good LMSs, it accelerated the march towards having your digital capability stood up. All of those things would have taken extra time. And, and so very, very grateful for that. But what there's obviously been is an overfeeding from that now because it's all we've had for two years and everyone's really really tired of a pixelated view of themselves looking at like looking at their lines and their forehead and trying to look interested and engaged and not yawn whilst on camera uh, you know to, to learn while you're physically watching yourself learning is a very very different experience to being in an instructor-led room where you don't have to witness yourself can, like processing information so I don't think there's been any research on that and the impact of that but you, as you would expect, the normal levels of di digital fatigue are there. Yeah, yeah. And certainly, you know, work, work, you work in a very kind of creative and collaborative environment, uh, I, I'd imagine. And certainly from what I've read and also from what I've seen in our own little way, uh, you know, we, we have our best days on, on the couple of days a week when we're together in the office in terms of the creative ideas and the kind of sharing and collaboration. And then we have... You know, great success when we're working individually 
at home on perhaps more thinking tasks, writing tasks in, in our uh, in our world. Do you find that remote working is the enemy of collaboration and creativity, or are there ways around it? No, so I think the hope it, it, and to kind of put it out in a different thought and to process it differently. I think home working is the friend of reflection, right? You get to smash through the to-do list, think about, process at your own speed, reflect, work through stuff in a much less stressful way. And then you get to go into the office and you get to bring your ideas, you get to you know, contribute, lay down a few markers, and the, the high energy that that requires, the peaking of, of the adrenaline and dopamine that it requires to perform at that level. It's not sustainable five days a week. I don't know how we ever did it five days a week, quite frankly. And what the impact of that has, has been on things like mental health and, and brain diseases, the, the prevalence of tumours that is you know, slightly out of control. Because that took energy, that took mental energy to be constantly on all of the time. So I don't see it either as the enemy, but, but, but both now it's very clear what the uses of both are. I'm not getting on a tube to send an email from my office that I can send from my kitchen. Well, I've got a wash on, quite frankly, and I shouldn't have to apologise for wanting to be able to hang my kids' uniforms up on the line. And then I can go to the office refreshed and full of all the good stuff, bring it, get, get faster, further and cleverer, and then go back and process it and put it all in order in my brain. And go back and do it again. Now that feels like a pretty peachy cycle. So, you know, if the future of work is anything, it's twofold, isn't it? It's the future of the work that we do. And that is as yet undefined. There are jobs on the horizon that we don't even have in workforce planning at the moment. We don't even know what they are, but they're coming. So there's the work that we do, and then there's the how we do it. And so the future of work is always a twofold question for me. And offices now that are made up of rows and rows of desks are mausoleums. They are ill-equipped for the, for, the, for the work of the future because the work of the future is going to be entirely in breakout in the office. Because if the office is anywhere you can be, you know, I answered 10 emails this morning in Richmond Park going for a cycle. I stopped. I knew I had some emails to answer. So my, my office was, you know, one of the Queen's Royal Plaques. Brilliant. Not, not a desk in sight. It was a wooden old bench. And I got my work done and, and my people are happy. So how do we do the work that we do and what's the work of the future? The future of work is a very simplistic term. It makes everyone feel better about the change that we've all gone through. But, it, it, you know, the future is coming and we've got to start solving for it and designing for it. I think we all underestimated, exactly as you said earlier, Joe, how much mental energy goes into being with your colleagues in, in, in the office face to face. And yes, yeah, certainly, I think we're all finding now that the, the days we spend uh, together, we're just so much tireder in the evening. And at first I thought, well, is it? I have a very relatively short commute. It's, it's not that commute. I mean, the commute doesn't you know, help, but it's not the commute. It's the fact that you've almost been on stage that that sharing that being visible that listening that learning hopefully is actually what is, is is tiring and to think that we did that for five solid days and didn't have that reflection time it's incredible really and i think we've all we've all seen the uh, the benefits of it but i do worry slightly and it's up to every individual and every individual organization uh, but i'm speaking to a number of 
companies these days where they're struggling to get their people motivated to come back and do the face-to-face thing at all. And I do think that that will be to the detriment of the individuals and to the organisations. Yeah, and I, but, so there's a couple of things there, isn't there? What, why? Why are they? Why are they lacking in motivation? You have to know the answer to that question. And it's not just that they've got, you know, they've had too much of the good life at home in their pajamas. That's not the problem. It's it was never the problem in the beginning because if you recall, towards the end of the final lockdown, people were crawling the walls to get out and go back to the office. So if your people don't want to come back to work, then you need to look in the mirror and figure out why, because it certainly isn't the fact that they want to stay at home. In fact, very, very few people really want to stay at home, but you've got to give them something to go to work for. It's not them, it's you. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely that. So, you know, get yourself your engagement survey, dust it off, get it out there, talk to your teams and understand. Again, my point is, If you have an office full of rows and rows of desks where you expect people to sit at those desks and send emails they can send from home, coming at it all wrong. It's got to be breakout space, collaboration space, environments where people can think. And yeah, this is obviously very aimed at the idea of knowledge working and, and people who do certain aspects of work. It's not going to be the same on a manufacturing line, right? It's not the same if you're a doctor or a paramedic or you know you're a milkman they're different kinds of work and I'm not really speaking to that work I'm definitely talking more of you know knowledge working office-based work the the point is always if your offices are designed for people to sit in isolation and tap away at a keyboard that's what's changed do that at home and save themselves a tenner and make their own lunch and not have to spend money on types not going to do it my hunch is We are all ready to fall in love with each other again, right? We've missed one another. We've been having digital relationships for two years. And whilst being around one another again now does represent challenge and anxiety and there are blockers to it, we want to do it. So if you're not finding a way of bringing people together again and helping them fall in love with each other again, the way it was before but better, you're missing an opportunity. You're really missing an opportunity. So that is my hunch. We are ready to love one another again. Choose love. Choose love. Love is always love. All you need is love. Wow. What an uplifting way to end. That's wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on The Hunch. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed chatting today. Thank you for listening. Follow me, Mark Schmid or our company, Simmons & Schmid, on LinkedIn or Twitter for news of our next episode.